And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 3. The book of Ezra and chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 through the first part of verse 6, verse 6a. So, Ezra chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6a. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Ezra 3 at verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. What is one of the top priorities when you move to a new destination? Surely it is finding a place to live. There may be many other things that need to be done, but when you come to a new location, you need to find somewhere to live. So what did the returning Jews do when they arrived home back in the promised land. They found a place to live. That was on the top of their priority list. And we find this in Ezra chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, where we see the chapter ends with a reference to the fact that some of the exiles remained in the city of Jerusalem. That's where they were going to live. And others went to their towns throughout Israel, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 17. Ezra chapter 3 begins with a reference to not a location, but to a time, to uh, the reference to the seventh month. The children of Israel are in the towns and uh, in the city of Jerusalem, And we read that they gather together as one man to Jerusalem in the seventh month, Ezra 3 verse 1. Now, 
it's most likely that the seventh month is a reference to the Hebrew month of Tishri. Um, that would be in our calendar around September or October. It's in the fall. Um, that month in the Hebrew calendar is one of the most important months in the whole religious calendar of their year. Um, if that is so, as many scholars believe it is, then it is likely that this is only a few weeks after they returned from the captivity in Babylon. Now, the first day then of this month of Tishri would normally have been taken up with the celebration of the new year and the Feast of Trumpets. We read of that in Leviticus 23 through 25. And then following that by the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of Tishri. Uh, we know that by its Hebrew name, Yom Kippur. Uh, it's not mentioned explicitly here, probably because there was no temple yet rebuilt. Um, but the details concerning the observance of the Day of Atonement, of course, again, we read of in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. And then that was followed by a week-long celebration of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which began on the 15th day of that month. Now, if all of that is correct, as many commentators believe, then these returning exiles have hardly have had time to settle in their new location, whether it was in the city or in one of their towns, before they are all summoned to gather as one man in Jerusalem, Ezra 3 verse 1. Uh, before we come to any other of the details of this, uh, it is worth us pausing here um, to note that this is another great illustration and indication of God's sovereignty and of God's sovereign plan being fulfilled. Um, it is no coincidence that the Jews just happened to be back in Jerusalem at the time for the most important month of the year for their religious observance and celebration of the various feasts that God had appointed for them. Now, in all of the years of exile, the people would not have been able to observe this in the way that they were now going to reinstitute. But one might have wondered whether after all of the years of exile, the 70 years, um, would the people not at least be allowed some time to relax maybe now they're back home? Um, or to at least get settled in to new circumstances? Um, would they not be given time to rebuild homes? After all, most of it was destroyed by the invading Babylonians. Um, could they not attend to these other priorities um, before they were all summoned to gather to observe these religious festivals Again, um, one commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Should they not engage in building homes for themselves 
rather than burden their family and friends by occupying already crowded dwellings? Would it not make sense for them to establish agricultural and commercial enterprises to support their families? End quote. So we might ask the question at the beginning here from verse 1, uh, why this need to gather in Jerusalem at this time, seemingly so quickly after their return to the land? After all, the city was still a city in ruins, uh, a city that would look disheveled, run down, broken down. Um, visit to Temple Mount, as we often hear it called in our own day and generation, where the temple had once so wonderfully uh, been uh, built and located for the worship of God. Uh, a visit at this time to Temple Mount would serve only to remind them of their smallness, of their seeming insignificance as a people now following their conquest and their exile. Uh, as they looked upon that location, perhaps we can take a moment or two in our mind's eye to, to think about this. Um, what was left of the great temple that Solomon had built? Piles of stone and rubble. That's all that was left. Um, stones and rubble blackened by the fire that the Babylonians had set to the city as a whole and in particular to the temple and uh, the ruins. It was not a, a glorious, encouraging picture that they looked upon. One commentator observes, quote, he says, standing there gazing at these stones, a location overgrown with weeds, they would be reminded of the past, a past that many of them would perhaps have wanted to forget, end quote. So why gather there then in this place that would seem not to be the place of great optimism and of great prospects? Uh, the place of their defeat and a place of ruin. Why gather there? Well, then that brings us to our text, Ezra 3, 1 through 6a, that shows that in the midst of other human responsibilities and needs, the greatest priority of the people of God is to engage in God-centered, biblically-informed worship. They were to gather there to worship God. As we begin to unpack this uh, section, uh, we make a beginning this evening under two headings. First of all, the ultimate goal of the church. And then secondly, prioritized worship. So first of all then, the ultimate goal of the church, verses 1 through 3. If I were to ask you this evening what the ultimate goal of the church was, I wonder how you might respond. Many in the church might say, well, is not missions the ultimate goal of the church? Important though mission is to the church, the spread of the gospel, even to the ends of the earth, that is not the ultimate goal of the church according to the Scriptures. Mission is very important, but the ultimate goal of the church 
is the right ordered worship of God. That's her ultimate calling. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Mission exists because in this fallen world, worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, mission will be no more. It's a temporal necessity, but worship of God will abide forever and ever. Now, indeed, there's a very important relationship between the worship of God and mission. But it's important we get the relationship established and defined correctly and its uh, connection and order. Worship is the goal and fuel, as we might call it, of mission. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions we aim as the church to bring the nations into the enjoyment of God's glory. Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Or Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. So worship is the goal of missions. It's to bring men, women, boys, and girls, to know who God is and to be in right relationship with Him and then to give to God that which is His due. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. But the worship of God is also the fuel of missions. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Preachers will never call out, Let the earth rejoice, who cannot say from their heart, I rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 104, verse 34. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 9, verse 2. So, you see, mission begins and ends in worship. And so, the exiles here had returned to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area with one principal primary aim, to worship God according to His commandment. That was what they were there to do. Now, as we've seen previously already in the book of Ezra, Again, the author here has omitted many details regarding where the somewhat, uh, as, as most scholars think, over 40,000 people uh, lived and supported themselves. No doubt they lived somewhere and they needed shelter and they needed some uh, means of supporting themselves. Uh, the author of Ezra here does not concern himself with all of those details, uh, significant though they are. Um, the most important thing here on which he dwells as we come to Ezra chapter 3 
is the worship of God by His people. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, corporate worship meant only one thing, and that was that the ruined temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt. That is how worship was to be offered to God according to His commandments. And then with the rebuilding of the temple, there would be the annual, monthly, weekly, and daily rituals of sacrifice. And it was these things that must be reinstated in the life of Israel. Now, one of the uh, first and therefore foremost uh, priorities is then the altar had to be rebuilt. The temple would, uh, in all of its detail, would come later, but the first priority was therefore rebuilding the altar upon which the sacrifices were made. And therefore, we see here that they set to work on that before they set to work on all the rest of the temple itself. Now, for that temple, the exiles would need to order materials, especially wood. We read of that in verse 7 of chapter 3. And that would require some further preparation. But in the meantime, they focus on building the altar. And that's what we see in the passage we have in front of us here. Now, what is this altar? Well, the altar is the altar of burnt offering that we read of in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, verse 28. Sometimes it's called the bronze altar. Uh, it's, it was overlaid uh, with uh, brass, uh, sometimes called bronze. We read of that in Exodus 39, at verse 39. It stood outdoors in the temple precinct. Uh, it was in the court of the priests between the temple itself and the court of Israel. And it was on this altar that the animals were offered in sacrifice to the Lord. Now, in the context of rebuilding this altar and then offering the sacrifices that were prescribed, Ezra 3.3 introduces uh, a note of anxiety, as we might say. Uh, this note of fear was caused by the tension between the exiles who have returned and the peoples of the lands, uh, which refers to the surrounding peoples of Ashdod, Samaria, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and the persons of foreign descent now living in Judah that the exiles found upon their return. Uh, and so, the exiles here uh, experience some measure of anxiety, some fear uh, at this stage of uh, rebuilding, um, particularly as they focused on the altar and then turned to the temple. Um, but nevertheless, even though they faced that challenge and that difficulty, um, they understood clearly that this is the place where God had promised to be with His people as they faithfully worshipped Him according to His commandment. Exodus 29, verse 43. Well, then that brings us in the second place this evening to 
prioritized worship, prioritized worship. And we find that in verses 3 and 4. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, it is most likely that we're in the seventh uh, month, Tishri, here. Uh, though we cannot be absolutely certain about that, there are some, color, some scholars who would um, take a different view uh, from that. Um, but whatever may be the details of the timing here, what we do know for sure is this, um, that they were seeking now to engage in the worship of God according to His commandment as if the law had been given to Moses uh, as they came out from the land of Egypt. And none of that had been possible whilst they were in exile in Babylon. Um, indeed, for many of these returnees, um, they had probably never experienced this worship. For those who had been born in exile, uh, they would have heard about it, reported it uh, from, from others of the community, but had never participated in it themselves, never experienced it uh, themselves. But nevertheless, nothing was more important now they were back in the land than the establishment of the worship of God according to His Word. You know, the practicalities of life, their homes, their families, their jobs, means of support, important though they were in their own place, they were not more important than this first and great priority, the worship of God was the great priority. It was why God had called them together as a people, why He had constituted them as He had brought them out of bondage in Egypt, as He had made covenant with them at Sinai. You remember the great uh, call to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might go and do what? Just live in a certain place and make a living and have some sort of happy and blessed existence? That wasn't what it was. That wasn't what it was, was it? Let my people go that they might worship me, that they might full, fulfill their primary calling to worship the Lord their God. To use the language perhaps of um, our confessions and catechisms uh, with which we fami are familiar, this was their goal, their chief end of why they had been made in the image of God, to glorify God, and in so doing, enjoy Him forever. And so, the text informs us here that they built the altar and offered sacrifices, verse 3. They made that pri the, their priority. They uh, re-established uh, an altar as God had commanded, and then offered the sacrifices that He prescribed. As was noted in our prior uh, point, it's not surprising, therefore, that this resulted in tension with the people that they found when they returned to the land. Tension between the Jews of the uh, exilic return uh, and those who had remained there and not gone into exile and those of the other nations around them. Um, there may have been a variety of reasons for those tensions. Uh, some commentators want to point to things like, 
Well, then now there's a whole host more people trying to live off this land. Um, that's going to uh, create some uh, tension of competition for resources. Um, the need for food and shelter. Um, some others suggest created uh, significant administrative problems. Um, and we can perhaps understand that to some measure. But the real issue that caused the tension and which caused some anxiety in the hearts of the exiles when they saw the response of these other people around them was that they were coming to reestablish the true worship of the one true and living God. Uh, the rightful administration of the temple and its surroundings for its purpose in the worship of God. And so when offers of help from those surrounding peoples uh, to want a part in that are refused and rejected by the exiles, then the tensions increase. We would say they're ratcheted up uh, significantly. Um, we'll come to this, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, almost a century later, uh, when Nehemiah is uh, building the city, rebuilding the walls, the tensions, the threats were so tangible, so real, so significant that they warranted arming the temple builders, you remember. And we get that very famous picture uh, from the book of Nehemiah with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other building with one hand and being prepared for attack with the other. We read of that in Nehemiah 4 and verses 13 through 14. Um, the tension is not at that level as yet at this point in the book of Ezra, but the seeds of it certainly are here. Now, as believers find themselves in such a circumstance, um, we don't find ourselves in identical circumstances, but we may find ourselves, as the church often does in this world, um, opposed by the world. The world may want to come and make alliance with the church, but when we won't do it their way, won't let them be what they want to be, uh, and say, well, that's acceptable as those who name the name of Christ, um, then we may well face something very similar to what uh, these uh, believers faced with the opposition of the people around them. When believers, Christians, find themselves in that circumstance, what ought they to do? Uh, you note again here how the uh, Bible is very honest about the um, circumstances of believers. It doesn't seek to cover over uh, some of the measure of anxiety that they felt, the fear that was in their hearts. Um, what ought they to do when they find themselves in such circumstance? Well, of course, they need to turn to the Lord. They're not sufficient to face that in and of themselves. Um, they were uh, a significant number, 40,000 plus, but, but not in compared to all the others all around them. Um, they couldn't simply say, well, you know what, we can, we can handle this ourselves. They needed to turn to the Lord, and turning to the Lord or involved, of course, uh, obeying the Lord and worshiping Him aright. Um, that's what was involved. It wasn't just a case of saying, oh, Lord, help us, but in appealing to God for His help, 
for his uh, support, for his defense of his people. They were then to be the faithful people of God, faithful to their covenant overlord. And uh, then that covenant overlord comes to protect his people. Why did they need to, to do that? And why is that expressed here in terms of the right worship of God, the turning to the Lord? Well, because most of all, that's what the people of God need. They need, of course, the forgiveness of their own sins and a sense of the Lord's then gracious presence with them, that He is for them. Uh, to use Luther's great language that God is always toward us and for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what's pictured here. Um, but that's forgiveness of sins, that palpable sense, as our forefathers would have called it, of the sense of the Lord's gracious presence with His people is only experienced when that sinner is reconciled, is at peace with the God of heaven. How is that accomplished? Well, here, of course, it's pictured for us in Old Testament language, in the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, but it's pictured here in the altar rebuilt and the sacrifices offered. Once that altar is rebuilt, then they can offer the sacrifices again, which picture um, that which was necessary in order that sins might be forgiven, the shedding of blood for the remissions of sin, the shedding of blood that there might be reconciliation where there had been, been previously alienation between God and the sinner. Just to give us again a reminder of uh, what was involved um, in the sacrifices that were offered, um, over 200 sacrifices of bulls, rams, and male lambs were prescribed in the festivals of trumpets and booths, tabernacles, as well as the daily morning and evening sacrifices of burnt offering that we read of in verse 4. Um, again, that reminds us in very graphic terms, um, blood would have run everywhere from this altar and down upon the ground surrounding it. Um, it reminds us of that famous text, doesn't it, from the book of Leviticus 17.11, of course, uh, cited by the author of Hebrews that we've looked at in recent times, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And here this is pictured. And though the blood of those bulls and goats and male lambs uh, could never ultimately take away sin, could never ultimately reconcile the sinner with God, they were the picture that God had appointed to point to one Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It was to remind the people again of that great uh, truth of the Word of God, the great doctrine, as we were thinking this morning, of the Word of God, uh, of the substitutionary nature of sacrifice, 
here, the substitutionation nature of animal sacrifice under the old covenant. What did that speak of? What did it point to? What was it a picture of? Well, first of all, it was a picture of the magnitude of Israel's sin that required such a sacrifice to pay the price. And it was also the picture of the need of justice to be met so that forgiveness could be granted. God cannot just overlook sin. can't just say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. A price has to be paid, the price demanded by God's holy law. And so, we have pictured for us here the magnitude of their sin and the need for justice to be met if forgiveness was to be granted and reconciliation made. As I said earlier, the blood of bulls and lambs and rams and goats could never ultimately take sin away, however. So, what was the answer? Well, of course, the one to whom these things pointed. These were but the sign. We needed to follow the sign to that which is signified, Christ Himself, His blood shed in substitution for sinners. His blood accomplishes forgiveness, grants forgiveness. His blood pays penalty that satisfies justice. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, the chapter that we're currently in, getting towards the end now in our morning exposition. The author says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one that takes away the sin of the sinner, who grants reconciliation, makes peace with God takes away that alienation even through His own blood shed upon the cross. And so, as we draw to a close this evening, as we will say more about this prioritized worship, Lord willing, next Lord's Day evening, we think, up, we think of the setting up of this altar in Jerusalem, uh, a sign of the great priority of worship in the people of God, even in the midst of opposition even as a great sign of their turning to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and trusting to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, even though that caused opposition from unbelievers all around them. What did the setting up of the altar in Jerusalem at this time indicate? What did it signal? The exile's need for the coming Messiah, for one who would save them from their sins. And of course, it's that which it signifies to us this evening. We sometimes read these Old Testament books and we think, well, what does that really mean for me today? Um, I'm not an Old Covenant Israelite. Um, I'm not in Jerusalem. I'm not in a town outside being summoned to gather, um, to worship according to the Old Code. Uh, so, what can this possibly say to me? It says to you what it says to them. Not that we are commanded to worship in that way now, but it says the same thing by way of message. It points and it signals the great need for 
Messiah. The difference was they had to look for His coming. We have the great privilege of looking back that He has come. And I trust as we come to this Advent season again, um, that it isn't just something we um, come to year after year by way of rote and repetition. We enjoy some of the things of the festivities, presents and food and all of those good things that God gives to us, but we see the very heart and the very center of it. And we see that here again, the gospel in the book of Ezra, the setting up of the altar in Jerusalem signal to them as it signals to us the need for a Savior, the need for Messiah to come to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to God, and to enable us then to worship Him aright as blood-bought, blood-paid-for sinners, even to the glory of God and to our great blessing forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the book of Ezra. We confess that sometimes we have to work hard and struggle to understand its meaning and significance in our own day. We are dealing with things that were very familiar to them in their own day, but less familiar to us in all that You commanded under the Old Covenant. And yet we see in it clearly, O Lord, that which You purpose to picture under type and shadow particularly in the sacrificial system, particularly here in the great priority of it being reestablished so that the people might worship You according to that which You had commanded, that it might once again portray day after day, morning and evening, and season by season through the various festivals that there was a need for a Savior, a sacrifice that would take away sins. Grant us again to see the great glory of Christ who has come, even as we glory in Him at this time of the year as the one incarnate, but the one incarnate who came to fulfill all righteousness and then to die the death of atonement upon the cross. Turn our hearts again to Him Help us to glory in Him, never to be weary or never to become, O oh Lord, so familiar that we lose the wonder and the awe of what You have done for us in and through Your Son. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.